Good morning. Um, last week, we went over online, we went over the first, I think the first six verses of uh, James chapter four. Um, in class, we only got through the first three verses. Um, we, we talked pretty heavily about prayer. And uh, there was a couple things that I don't think that I clarified as well as I should have. And it, it left some people with a couple of questions. Um, so what we're going to do this week is we are going to um, just kind of bookmark James. We're going to stop for a minute. So we went through the first three verses in class, um, and we discussed prayer. So so we're going to bookmark right there for if you're in class at James chapter 3. Um, if you're watching online, uh, just hold um, verse 6. Um, so anyway, what we're going to do is we're going to talk heavily about the purpose of prayer because um, I worry that I wasn't as clear as I should have been and this is vitally important and urgently needs to be addressed. Um, I made the statement last week that God's will will always win out, right? I said uh, that for us, that we can, we can, I asked the question, would you rather receive what you asked for or that God's will would be done in the situation? And then I said, well, understand that God is going to win that one out every time and he is um, because he's sovereign but the question there is if God is completely sovereign um, I mean he's governing over everything then what's the point of prayer now before we can answer this we as brothers and sisters must agree on a few things Um, when Nick Saban begins training each year with his team, especially with new players. The first thing he does is he holds up a football and he says, this is a football. Now, why would he do that? Because he starts them out with the most fundamental truths. So so we have to start in a similar aspect. We have to first agree that the Bible is 100% true that there is no contradictions, and if it seems like there are, it's because we lack the understanding of, of, of the verses there or the context. Um, and there's no, it's not opinionated, but it, it's true, okay? Now, if we can't agree on that, then none of the rest of what I say or have said prior matters. So let's just assume that we agree So now let's ask another um, rudimentary question. What does God know? Well, God knows everything. So do we believe that? Now this, this lesson, to be completely transparent with you, this lesson has basically borrowed from uh, R.C. Sproul. Some of it's verbatim because he did a much better job of explaining the purpose of prayer than I ever could. But our prayer life is intimately related to the providence of God. It's God's provisions 
that we are praying about and for, and we entreat him in our communication of prayer. Okay, um, but when we look at providence, when we look at things being predetermined or foreknown, you know, God foreknew, um, he when we look at those things, we recognize that God governs the entire universe and all things in it. Okay. Um, you know, we can't say that God is completely sovereign and he not know everything or be in control of everything. Does that, does that make sense? Um, so as soon as we begin to wrestle with the sovereignty of God, because we will, we'll see things in the scriptures like that. When you think about like Judas, you know, people ask that question often. So was Judas born and predestined to betray Jesus? Well, yes. Well, did he? So so he didn't, never had a choice. No, he still chose to betray Jesus. So there's this idea out there with, with things being predetermined and choice. You know, it's God's will or man's will. And, and they have this idea in their head that it has to be one or the other, right? That it, things have to be dependent on whether it being God's will or yours. Um, but who says that that has to be the case, right? G- it was foretold that Judas would betray Jesus, but Judas still chose to betray Jesus. Um, so we're not going to get too off, you know, too off into that today. But we do need to understand and agree that God is sovereign; that He He does have control over everything. So one of the first questions that we're faced with is if God is sovereign and he ordains everything that comes to pass in some sense, then what use is there in praying at all? Why should we pray at all? Now, of course, the um, the simple answer here, the easy answer, which doesn't satisfy very many people, is because he told us to. Now, some people are like, well, I mean, yeah, he told us to. That should be enough. Okay, that should be enough. When Jesus Christ tells us to do something, that we should do it out of obedience. So if for no other reason, we can we can agree with that. Okay? But God not only ordains the ends of the universe that we read about in Revelation and in all of human history, but he also ordains the means to those ends. And just like he sovereignly has a plan of salvation that he is unfolding in history, part of the way in which God works and how he works out his plan of redemption is through the preaching of the word, right? He tells us to go and preach the gospel to all nations so that those who would hear it might be saved. That's our mission. So it's God who brings the increase to the preaching of the word, but he uses that means for his end, for his glory. So we have a responsibility, even if God is divinely sovereign over all things. And in light of his providence, we must be engaged in preaching. Okay? Well, the exact same thing could be said for prayer. God works in and through the prayers of his people. And it's not that the New Testament says, well, God is sovereign, so you can just kick your feet up and be lazy and don't be engaged in preaching, don't be engaged in evangelism or in praying. 
it's completely contrary to that. It's because God is sovereign that we get so excited about the role of prayer. Because in his sovereignty, he has so designed his plan of salvation to work through the prayers of his people. He's, des- he's designed it that way. That's why the Bible again and again not only encourages us, but commands us to be actively involved in prayer. Okay, now this brings us to last week's dilemma, if you were in class. Or maybe you had this thought when listening to the lesson. Does prayer change God's mind? Does prayer change God's mind? Well, if we ask the question in that manner, then to ask the question is really to answer it. And I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, But people aren't satisfied when you simply tell them, no, prayer doesn't change his mind. The only real question that I can give, or I'm sorry, the real only real answer I can give to that question is, of course not. Of course our prayers don't change God's mind. What could be further from our imaginations that your prayer or my prayer would have the power or the influence to change the mind of the Almighty God? So if we think about that for just two minutes, we'll see that to ask the question is to answer it. Because what would have to happen for God to change his mind? What kind of view of God do we have when we know that God has worked out a plan and he has his plan A and he's about to implement this plan that comes from his perfect knowledge of his absolute wisdom and of his total righteousness and integrity? Okay? He's utterly incapable of having an evil design, and he's incapable of having a foolish plan, right? So he has his plan A. There is no plan B. The plan to justify men in the sight of God was always through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ before he created anything. You know, Jesus even tells people, he says, before you were, I am. He always has been. And his role was to be our Lord and our Savior from the beginning of all things. Before time was even manifested by God, Christ was there. So he's going to implement this plan, and then all of a sudden, something that he hasn't anticipated begins to take place. You begin to pray. You say, God, could you please change this plan a little bit? I would prefer that you do it a different way. Have you considered this and have you considered that? Um, Suddenly you become God's guidance counselor and you get God to change his mind because you persuade him that his first plan was not a good one or at least not as good as yours. Or you give him information that he lacked before you talk to him. I mean, think about it. That's clearly not true. That's clearly not the case. 
So what kind of a God do you have if if you think that you have to inform him of the details of what's going on down here with you or with anybody? What kind of God do you have if if, if he requires you to inform him of things? I want to look over in Matthew chapter 6. This is verses 7 and 8. And this is Jesus speaking. He says, And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. So what's the conclusion there? That's the or you know what's the point in asking? It, it says right there that God knows the things that you need of before you ask Him. So so then what's the point in asking Him? Isn't it amazing that the Father that knows everything about you, He knows every hair on your head or any thought that you have ever or will ever have or will ever come into your mind every word before it's even formed on your lips and he knows what you're going to say before you say it there's nowhere that you can go to escape from his presence he knows exactly what you need but he still says come and tell me when he does that it's not for his benefit It's not for his education. And it's not for his edification. He doesn't need our praise, right? The scriptures tell us that if we don't, that even the rocks and the he- and the trees will cry out. So who is it for then? Well, the answer is obvious, isn't it? It's When he asks us to tell him what our concerns and our needs are, He is inviting us in to the sacred presence of the Almighty in heaven itself and saying, come and talk to me. And it's for our benefit because we walk away from that communication and that experience of speaking our needs and concerns before the Lord, the Lord of glory, encouraged and at peace because because we have been with him personally. And experienced his presence on a minute but very personal and intimate level. Think about Old Testament. Back when they had the veil, right? And 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 only the high priest, the highest of all the priests, could go into the Holy of Holies to where God's presence was. And even before that, this is the high priest he had to sacrifice or make sacrifices to for the remission of his own sins before he could even be in the presence of God. This is what God is asking us to do in our prayers. He's asking us to come before him and and petition these things to him. Now, let's not flatter ourselves to the point where we think that our wisdom or knowledge is somehow superior to his by thinking that we can give him information that he didn't already know Or even ask him to divert his plan. So from now on, whenever I'm asked if prayer changes God's mind, 
I'm going to say no. Because God's mind knew what you were going to pray before you even prayed it. And all of that, including your prayer, was factored into his perfect plan the entire time before you even were. So again, that sounds like everything is pre-programmed, and if everything's pre-programmed, there's no reason to pray. So let's let's ask this question in a different way, okay? Not does prayer change the mind of God, but how about does prayer change things? Does prayer have any impact on what actually comes to pass? And the Bible or I'm sorry, and the biblical answer to that is yes, and not just a simple yes, but a by all means. Now, we will get into this quite a bit in James chapter 5, which is why I actually was wanting to wait um, to cover this, but it's I think it's, um, I, I thought it was prudent that we went over it now since the question was asked in class. But let's look over in um, Acts Okay, and, and let's look at one of the countless examples of how prayer changes things. Okay, I'm looking at Acts chapter 9, 36 through 42. It says, At Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her and they... They laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda, or I think Lydia, some translations, was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. But Peter arose and went with them. And when he had come, they brought him to the upper room. And all the widows stood by him, weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Now listen to this. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. So does prayer change things? Absolutely. Absolutely it does. It doesn't just change things, but it makes an enormous impact on things that are going on around us. And it's ordained by God. He designed it that way. He wants to work through our prayers. He wants us to be a part of his work. Just like God, you know, we can all agree that God doesn't need us to proclaim his gospel to the the world. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need Josh O'Brien to go and speak to someone. He will reach them with the gospel if they are called according to his purpose. That's what his word tells us. And we can agree with that. And we can say, well, when we do that, it's not us that's doing the work, but it's God who who's working through us and he's just letting us help because he loves us but we can't seem to grasp it's the exact same with prayer the exact same so when we're talking about prayer god wants us to pray for things he wants us to petition things to him 
and bring them before him so that we can be a part of his work. And he wants us to know that he's listening and that he loves us. But there are countless other examples where prayer changes things in Scripture. Okay, I'm just going to throw some names out there. David, Lazarus, Paul, Samson, Moses, Noah, Jonah, Elijah, etc. Right? Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and then the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So, of course, prayer changes things. But remember that God rarely answers our prayers in the manner that we would choose. And sometimes the response is an outright no. But at the same time, don't miss out on the opportunity. Pray for the sick. Come to God with your concerns. Pray for those who suffer because God does answer prayers. He does heal the sick. He does relieve our suffering sometimes. He, But it's... It's not cast as an absolute guarantee, right? This idea, this term where, you know, God is not your magic genie in a lamp. This is where this kind of stems from. Let's, let's kind of take the little colloquialism out of it and say, instead of that, like, God does not guarantee that when we pray for something that he will give us exactly what we're asking for, but he does guarantee that he will give us exactly what we need. So let's not forget that every Christian who was ever born before, let's say, 1890, just to be safe, that every Christian born before 1890 has died. Because Christians die. Christians die. Christians get sick. And if all of our prayers were answered the way we wanted, no one would die. No no one would ever be sick. No one would ever suffer. There's no guarantee that Christians are going to escape death or suffering or disease. We know that. But we should still be encouraged because at times God does restore people. You know, I I mentioned Beverly Allen in class last week, and I'll use her again. The story of her husband David is amazing. Just like the story of Lazarus, God restored both of them. It doesn't say anywhere in Scripture that Lazarus died, but we know that he did. He's a man. And I'm sure there was someone along those lines that thought, well, God didn't totally heal him then, I guess, did he? Because he died? So one of the most misappropriated beliefs that we'll get to in chapter 5 a little more is that James says that the prayer of faith, he, he says the prayer of faith that will save the sick, right? We now have a whole theology, whole denominations, plural, in the modern culture called faith healing and prosperity gospel and this idea of name it and claim it, you know, you name it. They preach this idea that if you are not healed of your ailment, of your malady, of your circumstances, then it's obviously the problem is that you didn't have enough faith because if you have real faith, you'll never be sick and you can heal the sick because their idea is, well, God always wills healing. They, they take this one verse, this not even a full verse, that the prayer of faith will save the sick, and they build their entire foundation on that. 
when it's taken completely out of context. This is such a disgusting perversion of the total picture of what prayer is and who God is. And if this is what you believe, you have a complete misunderstanding of the gospel. The greatest teacher that we have on how to pray is Christ himself. And when he was faced with his great passion, his the, his his greatest turmoil, the his ultimate suffering that none of us could imagine None of us could imagine what it was like to have the cup of God's wrath set before us or set before him. We can't imagine that. He in agony and in such agony is sweating blood. Is now on his face before God in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Now, was that an act of unbelief on Jesus' part? By no means. God forbid. Anathema on that idea, right? But notice that Jesus quickly added, he said, Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Now, there's these two words that are mentioned by James. Deo valente. Deo valente. Don't say that you're going to do something next week or next month or next year without adding these two words at the end. God willing, Deo valente. God willing, I will see you next week. But God may not be willing. God may take me between now and then. Or God may incapacitate me so that the plans that, that I set for myself, set up for myself for the next week, they may not come to pass. Because God doesn't will it. Faithful prayer, true faith. What faith is, is trust. And the prayer of faith is a prayer that trusts God with the outcome, even if he says no. That's what Jesus teaches us in Gethsemane. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. So if you want me to take that cup, I'm going to trust you while I'm drinking it. That's the posture of Job. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. So remember who it is whose will is sovereign. Remember that God's will does not always agree with my will. And we should be glad Because that means that God is not like us. Praise God, he is not. In chapter 5, James will not allow us to sit idly by and say, well, whatever happens, happens, because, you know, it's God's will. No, he says, the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now, he doesn't say the casual, insincere prayer of the unrighteous. Because God doesn't hear those prayers, and that's a whole other lesson. But it's the fervent prayer of a righteous person that avails. Now, I'm going to wrap up with this idea, okay? Do you remember the parable of the unjust judge? Um, if, if you don't, it's a, it's a fantastic parable, okay? Um, and I'll, I'll just kind of summarize 
fervency is shown here. Uh, the meaning, uh, or meaning that praying with a certain amount of passion, um, and and that that amount kind of depends on the severity of the concern, right? And you will know exactly what I'm talking about. If you've had to deal with some very serious uh, concern, you have found probably found yourself at times face down, um, you know, just pleading with God more fervently than you ever have. This is, this is what we're talking about here. There was a judge in a certain city who regarded neither God nor man. That's what the scriptures tell us. And there was this poor woman who had been wronged, and she came to the gate seeking justice. But the judge had no time for her. He didn't want to be bothered with her, so she kept knocking at the door, right? She kept asking to be heard, and she persisted in her prayer until finally he couldn't stand it anymore. And just to get her off his back, he heard her case, and then he delivered her. Now, what's the point of the parable? Jesus is not saying that we are to pester the judge until we finally get what we want. The point of this parable is even if, or if even corrupt judges, even corrupt judges in this world from time to time will hear somebody's prayer, how much more will the true judge of heaven, the true judge of heaven and earth, who has no corruption at all, hear your prayers. So Jesus then then asked this um, rhetorical question, will not God vindicate his elect who cry out to him day and night? At the beginning of this, we're told that Jesus taught them a parable to the end that men ought to always pray and not faint to the end. He taught them to completion until they understood. And what I want to emphasize is that not only should we pray, not only are we commanded to pray, but God wants you to pray and he wants to work through those prayers. He wants to hear from us much like I want to know how my kid's day was. Right, I, I talk to my wife multiple times a day. I know what my kids do and what they're doing at all times. I'm looking over here because Adam is sitting on the bed. I know what my kids are doing. Yeah, I know what my kids are doing at all times, all day, every day. But when I come home and they say, hey, Dad, and they hug me and they say they miss me, and the first thing I normally do is I ask them, what did you do today? Now, is it because I didn't know? No. It's because I want them to tell me. It's because I love them and I care about them. And I want them to know that I care about their day. I want them to know that I care about how school went and how, you know, I want to see these drawings they've done. Even though their mom has already sent me a picture of it, I want them to bring it to me as their father. We must remember that God gives us everything. Everything that he gives us is is an example of himself to us. Our marriages, our children, our jobs, fill in the blank, our roles in church. These are all small examples to show us and teach us more about himself. So it comes down to this. When we pray, 
remember who it is that we're talking to. This goes back to the very purpose of this class. Yes, this class is to edify and equip the saints, but to put more simply, it's not to try to get through the book of James or any other scripture. Any scripture we go through, the point is not to move through the scriptures so we can finish the book. The point is to better understand what God is telling us through James about himself and who we truly are in comparison. That's the whole point of studying the scriptures is so that we can more understand and better understand the nature and character and holiness of God Almighty. That's why if we need to stop in the middle of a chapter or even go back three chapters to make sure we understand what God is telling us, we will. We will be adamant and faithful to that. So if someone, if we have moved past something that you don't really have understanding of yet, let's stop. Let's ask the question and let's answer the question and come and reason together until we have that understanding. Now, I understand for time's sake, we're not going to be able to answer every single question of of every person, but we should all at least have a general consensus of an understanding of the idea or of the um, point that God is trying to make through the scriptures. Prayer is for us because God loves us. He gave us the ability to commune with him through his son who has saved us. And he wants to work through your prayers. He wants you to bring it to him. But just know that he already knows what you're going to pray. And he's already got a plan for it. And it's perfect. Now, I hope that that was an all-encompassing um, lesson. I hope that, that, that I couldn't have made that any clearer. And if I need to, we'll stop again and we'll cover it again. But, but I, I sincerely hope that we have a better understanding of, of what prayer is and why we pray and why God wants us to pray. So next week, for those of you at home, Um, We are going to, uh, I think, the lesson online, I think it was through verse 6. There's a possibility that we may, in in person, in class, only get through another three verses the following week. So, if that's the case, I'll post something else for you guys watching at home. Um, But again, I thank you guys so much for your um, attention for your commitment to to God's word, for your encouragement, um, and for your trust in me as a teacher. I th- thank you, and, and, I, and I do still covet your prayers for this class. Um, so without further ado, I thank you so much. Um, love you. I'd love to see you in class in person. If not, by all means, continue to watch. Please share this with people. Maybe, maybe they can. Maybe this will help someone. Um, 
That's the whole point of me doing this is to further the kingdom, further the understanding of, of God's wisdom, God's revelation that he's given us through his word. So uh, thank you. I appreciate you. And uh, if you're new, please subscribe to the channel. Hit that notification bell so you know when these videos go live. Um, and with that, thank you guys. Have a great week, and I will see you next week.